Welcome to Life's a Beach. I'm Bruce Hopkins, better known as Hoppo from Bondi Rescue. Each week I'll be sharing some stories, the good, the bad and everything in between. I'll be chatting to guests about their life experiences and giving our listeners an insight to the challenges we have faced in our lives. We'll share a few jokes and some banter along the way and hopefully our experiences will resonate with you. As the saying goes, while life's a beach, it can also be a bitch. Hey everyone, this week on Life's a Beach, this guy grew up in Cronulla, is a massive Cronulla Sharks rugby league fan. He's also a cricket tragic and he played Rod Marsh in How's That? Brendan Cowell has worked in film, theatre and media as an actor for most of his life. He's also known in season seven of Game of Thrones. He also plays Captain Mick Scoresby in the upcoming movie Avatar. Brendan has a great story, so now let's sit back and have a listen. Okay, this week in the Beach Shack, it's a pleasure. It's a well-known actor. He's done plenty in his career, and we're going to hear all about it. Brendan Cowell, how are you, mate? Good, my bro. How are you, mate? Mate, I'm really well. Uh, Now, I want to start, you grew up in Cronulla, so please tell me, mate, you're not a Cronulla Shark supporter. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think it's public knowledge that I'm the uh, number two coming in on the number one ticket holder, really, for the Sharks because, you know, I'm not sure the number one ticket holder is the real deal. But uh, the number two definitely is. Yeah, mate, I, I, I grew up in Cronulla and played for De La Salle and played with, you know, Adam Ritson and Adam Dykes and was coached by ET when I made the rep side, so... Yeah, I was a Sharks fan coming out of the womb, basically. Yeah. <laughs> uh, mate, uh, what was it like growing up in those days, you know, you were over there in the Shire? Oh, it's great. I mean, till you're about 12, Cronulla, the Southern Shire is the best place to grow up in the world. Like those long afternoons and fishing and beach and nature reserves and skateboarding and dogs and, you know, footy and like it's just unbelievable family like really it's really based around family and outdoors you know and um that's just the best thing for a kid's mind and the best thing for a kid's body is just all that outdoorsy life and that's what it was and then of course you know when you get into teenage life like anyway it gets a bit stressful and confusing but until that point it's like yeah i had an idyllic childhood and very much I was brought up in a cul-de-sac as well, so all the kids would come out after school, and it was like it's it was like an activity set up, you know, in the cul-de-sac. So you start, you got a, a couple of siblings, haven't you? Yeah, two sisters. Yeah, yeah. So you grew up with them, but how did you get into the acting? Was it something your, your early days when you were saying you're playing football? Was that something you wanted to do? Do you want to go on and be a, a football player? Like, and then how did the acting come about? Was that an early age? Um, no, the, I, I wanted to play cricket for Australia more so than footy. And I was, I was, I wasn't a great rugby league player. I was good. I had good hands, but I wasn't tough enough really. And it was, you know, I was firmly implanted in the bees with cricket, with footy. I, I'd have the odd time in the A's if they had an injury, 
I never went to the C's, but I was, you know, I was in the B team mm. with footy and I was well aware of that. But with cricket, you know, I'd score the odd 70 or 80 or I'd take three wickets, five wickets, and I, I went to a couple of rep camps and stuff like that. And Dad was really, you know, he was all over the cricket stuff. He was the coach. He was there umpiring. And I had an uncle who used to come down from Forbes and train me and, you know, there was talk, you know, I got into a couple of state sides with that. And, but when my parents divorced when I was 13, 14, there was kind of a choice, yeah, to go and move into the theatre stuff. Yeah, I, I accidentally got a TV commercial waiting for my sister to come out of a dance class and, and that kind of started it all. And then was that something that you became passionate with like, like, or was it something you didn't even realise existed or you had the talent for? Probably a combination, Hoppo, because I remember when I became a writer when I was 22 and I thought, geez, I'm a writer. And mum went, you were writing poems from the age of eight and reciting them and telling stories and you have a 100 sketchbooks full of short stories. So it, it, it's like, you know, it's like anything, I think. Like it's so, you're suddenly an overnight success from doing something for hundreds of thousands of hours and I was always a writer I was always an actor it was just a matter of waiting for the industry you know waiting to be an adult so I could go into the industry to do it because I was sitting mum and nan down from the age of eight and going I've got a 25 minute play and you're gonna have to watch it and then (laughs) mum and nan said you know by the age you when you were 10 or 12 it started to be quite entertaining (laughs) You know, it wasn't like, oh, shit, we've got to watch the kid do the thing again. It was good. Well, you must have known if you convince your uh, family to sit down and listen and watch you that must be something good with it. Well, I think all parents kind of, that's part of being a parent, I imagine, um, is sitting through a whole bunch of performances, sports things, and look, Dad, watch this. And that's part of the punish and the joy of it. But, yeah, I think Mum and Nan started going, oh, hang on kind of find myself looking forward to these and my impersonations were very good of teachers and Michael Jackson Oprah Winfrey you know and I would do the principal I'd do the priest and and I'd make a play where where all of them were in the same play you know so so in the uh, 90s you started writing plays what what were some of those I, I was reciting poetry in pubs you know I never thought I could be a playwright because I didn't think I was smart enough or, you know, or, you know, well-read enough. But then when I started watching theatre, I thought, well, I can hold people with my poems. Maybe I can hold an audience with a play. And so I wrote a play called Men, about three men locked in a room for an hour and you don't really know what they are and there's a pretty big reveal at the end and it went crazy and it ended up going to Belvoir Street, then it went to New York all the way from the old Fitzroy pub. And then I thought, geez, I'll write another play. And I wrote that for my acting career. But then I thought, no, I'll I'll actually just write to be a writer and then realised I was always a writer. And, you know, those ones are the joy ones. Like you get on the big sets and stuff and it's great. But, you know, writing something yourself and then, you know, mum was driving the car around, putting the the flyers up in Darlinghurst and we used our, our own couch and all that sort of stuff and you stand there on opening night and Judy Davis gives you a standing ovation. We're like, holy shit, <laughs> what have I just done? <laughs> you know, it's great. Your play called Bed earned you a share of the 2001 Patrick White 
Playwrights Award, which is one of the richest playwriting awards in Australia for new talent. How was that a, a something that you didn't expect to get? I, you know what? I, I didn't. I, I won a whole bunch of playwriting awards by the time I was 26. Pretty much all the playwriting awards you can win in Australia. And <laughs> and I thought, well, what do I do now? <laughs> and I think everybody was very annoyed at Sydney Theatre Company because I got up and accepted the award and said, I wrote this play in 24 hours. And they were especially annoyed by it that they'd given a prestigious <laughs> award to a little upstart who'd written a play in an oven. Because my mum... Mum actually came and saw me on the Thursday and went, you know, the Patrick White Award is $25,000 and it's due tomorrow night. And I went, oh, fuck, I've got an idea for a play. And she said, what? And I went, like, a guy's whole life is told through conversations in bed with five lovers and it's three scenes and it's all pillow talk and you see him have his first, you know, at 12 all the way to when he dies, five lovers, three laps, 15 scenes. And she goes, well... Go up to your room, I'll bring you some sayos and a cup of tea and in the morning we'll go print it out and we'll hand it in tomorrow at 6 o'clock. And I, so I didn't sleep. I stayed up all night. I stayed up for 24 hours, yeah, and I wrote this play in my mum's house and then we handed in and I won. Unbelievable. And then I directed it at Sydney Theatre Company and that's what won me the stable, the award at the stables and, yeah, it was all happening by then. And then I went on to run Wharf 2, the company at Sydney Theatre Company and, People like Robin Nevin, at that point, Robin Nevin, who used to run City Theatre Company before Kate and Andrew came in, you know, they, they just changed your career. She just saw me and went, come on, have six years of making theatre. Um, mm. And that that's th- those kind of people change, change your career. So when you said you wrote that in 24 hours, what's the, the usual time frame to write a play? Good play. I, I imagine <laughs> it, would, it would take a long time, as, as I think, wouldn't it? Yeah, it depends like that. That was a little piece, but, you know, writing Ruben Guthrie and a couple of other big pieces might take a year. Yeah, and and you go into development. So when you get in with a theatre company, you go into development and a director or the, 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 the team, the development team, start to give you a note. So it, it's, it's different for every case, really. I mean, I tend to write my own stuff now because I've got a bit of money, not a lot, but a bit, you know. So I tend to just write stuff and then hand send it out instead of trying to get a company to pay me to write something because I can't be bothered, I, I tend to go, I'm just, like I did that with my book. I just wrote a book, you know, in five months on my own. You know, I still haven't been paid for the book. <laughs> you know, oh. it's like <laughs> two years. You go, I haven't made money out of it. I, I just write it on my own and see what happens. But I like that because then I get to be creative instead of, you know, which a lot of TV writers face is, you have an idea, you go in with the producers and the network and then they start to take your idea into a place that you never intended and then it all gets mm-hmm. very confusing and it's hard to keep the integrity, the purity of the idea. If you just yeah. write something and hand it out, you're like, if you want it, this is what it is. But, you know, they can often say, it's not what we want <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. Mate, well, you did, you did direct the Ruben Guthrie play, the was that a, a, a really good achievement for you? Were I directed you the film. I didn't direct the play. Yeah. Wayne okay. Blair directed the play, who I did True West with and who I worked with a fair bit. But I directed the movie, yeah, which was great. And 
I still wake up in the middle of the night going, oh, I wish I did that, I wish I did that. And But I, I think <laughs> that with directing, which is probably the craft, like acting and writing, I feel very comfortable with. I'm good at, I can do it. Directing, I love doing it. I don't feel as confident doing it as I do the other ones. And But I'd, I'd like to have another go. And with Ruben, I felt a lot of pressure from a lot of, from the funding bodies and the, and the way that we got the money everybody needs the film to be this and and i think if i could look back i'd probably push back a bit more and i you know from working as an actor on film i see that really good film directors they make sure they get what they want they make sure the movie that you see is the movie that was in their head and i can see that to the to the point where they where they're happy to offend people um and i think sometimes that's the cost you know you can look at michael jordan's the last dance you know and it's like that's the last moment of that series of him going yeah i probably could have 20 friends now i have no friends that i won six rings yeah i don't know <laughs> like that and I, I think that's the case with great directors too they're like just do it i need you to do it i don't care this is what I need. Mm. Everyone goes, ah, but when the films are hit, it's like, I loved working with them. <laughs> Mate, you moved to London in 2016 and you achieved immediate success. So what do you think that was? That was all came down to this play called Yerma because I turned up, you know, I had an iPhone speaker and a blue suitcase and I didn't have an agent and, you know, I had some connections and I, 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 I was working as a writer in TV there because – when I wrote The Slap, the TV adaptation of The Slap, that set me up in London. And I thought I'd go over there and write telly off the back of The Slap. But then my friend Simon Stone, who's, you know, arguably the greatest theatre director in the world right now, he cast me in an adaptation of Yerma, the Spanish play that we modernised and we set in a glass box and Billy Piper um, played the lead, the title role. And he said, oh, are you going to be here in June and July? And I was like, yeah, mate. And I'm like, do you want to have a beer? And he's like, oh, I think I'll cast you as the husband in this Yerma play with Billy Piper. And I'm like, okay, sounds good. You know, I had I had another movie actually set in the Amazon that I was about to do. And I, I was probably going to not do Yerma and do the Amazon movie, but the Amazon movie, you know, revealed itself to not be real. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, I'll do this play. The play broke 15 years of box office records in London, went to New York, went back to London, was a smash. Like we had 300 people lining up around the corner at 10 a.m. every day trying to get a fucking ticket. Like, and this was within three months of me moving to London. So I didn't have to go and meet casting directors and go, here's my headshot, you know, and <laughs> here's my reel and I'm really exciting Australian actor, please cast me in stuff. The casting director from Game of Thrones was in the audience and said, can I have a drink with you after the show? And they said, look, we're going to try to find you something in Thrones. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have a major problem with that, if that's what you're <laughs> thinking. And that was because Simon Stone cast me in his play. And you know what? I was good in the play. Like, you know, I did turn up and I did do all those scenes and Billy Piper and I nearly killed each other on stage every night. And, you know, 
we went toe to toe and we never lied and we never held back. And it's a brutal piece of theatre. And if you want to watch one of the great plays, it's on NT Live and they shoot it incredibly. It's like a film. So check out Yerma on NT Live if, you, if you're looking for something challenging. Mate, you mentioned Game of Thrones. That What was that like? To, because you came in later on and see the series had been going for a while. Yeah, it was season seven. So, you know, and I hadn't seen it, you know, because I'm not a big sci-fi violence guy, so I didn't watch it. And then all of a sudden I went, oh, I better fucking watch this Game of Thrones. So I watched five seasons in about three weeks. And I thought, geez, this is brilliant. You know, the, the war scenes are insane. The dialogue's amazing. And I loved all the ki- how all the kids had power. Dinklage, who I'd worked with before, and, you know, it was sexy, dangerous. I thought it was great. But, yeah, and then I had a few auditions and they gave me a few notes and I wasn't quite getting it. And then I just played it, you know, incredibly violent, incredibly evil man. And they said, that's great. And I actually had my makeup test the morning after the Sharks Grand Final 2016 and I had not been to sleep and I got on a plane at 5 or 6 a.m. to Belfast and mum was like, you know, you're going to ruin this opportunity. You look red, you look like shit, you're still pissed. And I was just holding my passport in my tracksuit. So I didn't take anything else other than my passport, my phone. (laughs) And I turned up and I just looked and I walked in and the makeup artist went, just exactly like that. Really? (laughs) You look like you've been at sea for a hundred years and you've been in lots of wars and you're bruised and bad. We're just going to put a scar on you. But if you can turn up looking like that, fantastic. And I got the plane back and I said to mum, they said just to turn up exactly like this. And she was so angry. (laughs) But no, it was great. They're they're a really tight unit, Game of Thrones. You know, those actors all got very famous together and they all had no idea what show they were. Like they didn't know, they didn't get cast and go, we're going to be in the biggest show in the history of the world. It's going to be more popular than the Bible. Like they had no idea. They thought, oh, let's do this show. So they had a life change and they were very, you know, they were really not really nice to me. Why does those some shows work? Because a lot of people ask me about Bondi Rescue, you know, the TV show that's following us around doing what we do as lifeguards. And that was only ever going to be an hour special and everyone thought it only lasts a season or whatever and that would be all over and done with. But we've gone 16 seasons. So what do you think Game of Thrones had to be such a massive hit? Well, not enough beaches, <laughs> unlike your show. And swimming costumes. <laughs> I don't know. It just—it's that thing of just tapping into the zeitgeist, isn't it? That mm. you know, I'm sure the Sopranos didn't know that this show about a depressed gangster was going to be the most brilliantly executed show, greatest TV performance of all time. And the same when we did Love My Way. Like we were shooting Love My Way, and I thought, you know what? I think this is pretty good. And they've cast all these theatre actors and Claudia Carvin. I thought this is dark, this is interesting. Like, I reckon this has got something. and But you still don't bloody know because I've been on ones before where I've been like, I reckon this is going to, you know, this is going to move and nobody goes. <laughs> so, um, but I don't know, I think, I think that blend of scale and so often when we see big movies and stuff with massive scale, the script and the substance and the performance is diminished. It's just... It's a big, schlocky, expensive piece of shit. 
And what Game of Thrones did was we're going to make it really expensive and big and epic and medieval and world-building, but it's going to be also a fantastic piece of theatre with great writing and excellent performances. And it's going to have the Iliad. It's going to be about territories and family and family lines and, you know, and it's going to have really beautiful, well-written scenes. And then absolute delight to the eyes, you know. And so they just didn't skimp on the big stuff whilst they were making an expensive show. They didn't skimp on going right at the centre of this is a great drama, a great family drama. And they're clever like that, Dan and Dave, you know. I think, you know, whether there will ever be a show that matches it, probably not. Do you think it comes down to the a great show is the writing? Is that the main base of, of anything? And then the actors come in after that? Yeah, but then there's this really great show that I watched called Generation Kill with Alexander Skarsgård. And it's a war series. And I think it's like some of the best fucking performances and the best writing that I've ever seen. And it's these guys, you know, at war, Ameri- young American soldiers. And basically it's like a play because there's not a lot of action. It's all the stuff beside the action. And it is extraordinary. It didn't work because the timing was wrong. It was too soon. The audiences were like, no, I don't know if I want to watch that. I reckon if it came out five years ago, I mean, he Alexander Skarsgård went and got True Blood after that and became a superstar. But, you know, I also think there's timing. I think there's so many good things that came out at the wrong time, maybe with the wrong title, maybe with the wrong month. Like sometimes it's like love, you know, you meet a girl and you go, shit, man, if I met her now, I wouldn't have been such a dick because my priorities were drinking piss and playing golf. You know what I mean? And and Or you meet a girl and she's like, she's still talking about Connor the guy that she lived with in Queensland, and you're like, sounds like you're still climbing Connor's tree to me. And it's like that with, <laughs> with TV shows. Sometimes it's just not the right time. Sometimes with the Game of Thrones, it's just like the world is like, yes, we want this show. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it just hit at the right time. The world was ready, you know. And then recently came along Avatar. Now, that's pretty big also. Well, allegedly... The biggest, yeah. I mean, whatever big means, but it's definitely expensive, yeah. And that was, you know, Game of Thrones, I I had three and a half scenes in that, and one of them I'm just holding a boat while Jon Snow talks to someone, you know. But Avatar, I've got, a, I've got a really good part, and I've spent the last couple of years in Wellington on that, and I've got a little bit left in 2023. I've got a bit on film three left but film two uh, comes out next Christmas and yeah that was that came off doing Yerma because I Yerma led to me playing Galileo and then I got spotted on that and flown to meet Jim in LA for three days and he cast me so it was it was crazy a real game changer you know I, I had to come back to New Zealand and I was firmly implanted in London life and I thought Jeez, this is great. You, you have a good run. You get a bit successful and so much so you've got to go back to New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> you said a lot of the times you haven't had to be casted. You know, you've, you've done plays, you've done you know, movies that then 
director C and producer C and there you get the next one. But there's any time there's a, a real downtime where there's a struggle of, of not knowing when the next gig was coming or anything like that? Or is that when you put the time into writing and writing books? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question actually. Um, I, I mean, I, I finished on Avatar last December and I've just started an acting job last week. Right. And I'm what they call a successful actor. And that's an 11-month gap between jobs. Take into consideration COVID, which is this pandemic thing. I don't know if you've heard about it, but it's not great. (laughs) But even when you're killing it, it's still scary. I mean, I've got a job till April. I don't know what's happening after that. (laughs) And I probably (laughs) won't till February or March. (laughs) You know, and, you know, it's funny, like my sister, her daughter is trying to get into film school and she get, and she was like, she texted saying, I can't believe it. They haven't told us. They're on a waiting list. We don't know when we're going to find out. And I was like, welcome. Because <laughs> that's it. If she wants to be in it, that's it to the end. And even when you, you are in it, you don't know how much or whether they'll cut you out, whether it'll get made, whether it'll be seen. And it is... You know, you have to make like the Stoics and you have to take results out of your thinking and you have to just enjoy the journey because if you have expectations and you get caught up with results, then I'm lucky, man. And, you know, I said it to my nephew the other day, like, you know, the the lady that does my accounts, she's a dancer, she's a choreographer, she's got all these things. So she does accounts for actors 20 hours a week. And she always has. And she's doing well now, but she still does it. And I said, that's how you roll, man. Like you get a survival mode job and then you get your dream job. Hopefully one day your dream job's your survival job too. (laughs) But if it's not, you keep that fucking other thing going. And I'm lucky that writing is my survival job. I happen to be good at it. I happen to love it probably more than acting. But if I didn't have writing, to be able to pick up a script for 30 grand that takes me through six months, whatever, you know, I, I would, I've got a mate who runs a, you know, casting and he, all the actors come in, he sends it off $45. You know, I've got some of the, one of the great actors is a social worker, you know, and really smart actors, they found something else. Mm. Cause you, you cannot rely on this industry even when you're doing well. So you would have seen actors over the years go off the rails because they get too caught up in it all and then suddenly they've got nothing and they really, really struggle. It must affect uh, the mental health side of things must be tough. Yeah, I I think it's tough the whole time. And, you know, I think actors, actors who are in it for the wrong reasons are going to have a tough time anyway. If, if you're there for blind, you know, if you just have blind ambition and you want to be famous, I mean, you've probably got something mentally wrong with you. It's like, what are you doing? What do you want that for and why? But the guys that are in there to tell a story who probably can't do anything else have always been an actor and they want to connect with another actor and they want to help us great script get off the ground and do a marvellous job. You know, they're probably going to have a great, they probably have a really interesting life. But, you know, I think most adults mean it when, you know, adult actors mean it when they say, I hope my kid isn't an actor. 
and they don't mean it hilariously. It's like it's just not great. I mean, the highs are beautiful. Playing Galileo, taking a bow, working with the finest actors, James Cameron on an adventure film. Fucking oath, man. It's amazing. But, jeez, it's a struggle outside of that. And, you know, even when you get close, you just don't know. Yeah, it, it's just to be an actor, you have to be really sensitive because you have to be, have access to your emotions. But conversely, you have to have thick skin to be able to survive the industry. So it's really, that's why everybody turns to the substances, you know, because it's like, ah, it's like, give me all your emotions, shut them off. Give me all your emotions, shut them off. And I think a lot of people listening don't understand that because you see, you know, when you sit back watching movies or TV shows and you see all the, you basically see all the good stuff, don't you? But you don't see what goes on behind the scenes and the, and the person getting to where they need to get to. Yeah, it's that iceberg thing, isn't it, Hoppo? Mm. It's that, you know, like people could see my, oh, Brendan Cowell's got a book out. Oh, it's not been nominated for a award and he's talking about it on ABC Conversations. Well, I guess he got that book out because he's an actor and he's high profile or whatever. I sat there for five months at my desk from eight <laughs> till six during the pandemic in London, got COVID, kept going, wrote it, sent it out, got seven rejections and two yeses. I went with one of the yeses. You know what I mean? And I haven't been paid from it. Like, it hasn't made any money yet. It's That's two years. It's like what it looks like is not the reality. Most of my friends, novelists, are broke. I've had to buy them my book. And the, the thing with actors is you can suddenly get a TV show and suddenly you could earn a lot of money every week. But actors are really bad with money, you know. And so I've got mates who've earned five times as much money as me and they've pissed it down the drain or they just can't hang on to money or they have so many bloody debts by the time they get paid, you know, or they just go, let's all go on a holiday or let's party all the time. I'm lucky I'm, I've done the similar, but I'm smart. And whenever I got a big chunk of money, I, I just disregarded it and I ended up buying a house. And so I just made sure I had enough money to get pie every week and that same amount of money to pay rent and get by every week. And then any big chunk comes in, I don't want to know about it. And that's why I've got a house, you know. So if all... You know, as Hamlet says, if my fortunes turn Turk, if fortunes turn Turk with me, meaning if it all goes down the drain, I got a house. I got a house. I got something. Mm. You know, and and that's because whenever I got a big chunk, and that's the thing, man. Like, I haven't really been paid for five months, but I'm about to get paid from three jobs. Yeah, then so that's like that's, yeah, <laughs> tough. Yeah, tough when you know people out there that you know you get your weekly wages. It's a lot easier to manage than, than yeah, not, you know, not knowing like when not, the next pay is coming. I mean, coming. not I mean, not being paid since May anything, and I'm going well. And now you just get these bombs of money that are like, if if I told you what I get paid tomorrow, you'd go, "Geez, you're doing well." Not really. Yeah. Because yeah. that's 18 months. Yeah, yeah that's you right. Know? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, you, you know, and we're not right brain people, but you have to be able to program your money over that time. Like, how do you have a normal bloody life? How do you have kids? How do you, you know, you don't know what's going to happen. So, yeah, poor me. 
<laughs> Mate, tell us a bit about the book you've been talking about. It's called Plum. Um, and that's yeah. A, about an ex-NRL player living in Cronulla. Tell us a little bit about that and, and where we can go out and purchase the book. Yeah, well, it's out. It just got nominated for Best Book yesterday in the Indie Book Awards, um, which is a huge coup from the all the booksellers um, have their own awards. So it's kind of like the real book lovers awards and I've been nominated for Best Book best fiction novel so that's awesome and yeah you'll find it in all bookstores everywhere really the only problem is that there's been problems with the freight with dl because of covid there's been some cases in there and so a lot of books aren't getting to bookshops um which is a real crisis around christmas time but you can go on to booktopia um and you can order a signed copy wherever you are in australia um you can go to gertrude nellis and order it wherever you want in the world you can also get on and read the audio book that I read out. I do all the characters and the Kindle. So you can find it. But, yeah, Plum tells the story of a 49-year-old ex-footy player called Peter Lum, Peter the Plum Lum. His name's Plum. His nickname is footy name. And he's cruising. He works at the airport. He wants to be anonymous. He was kind of quite a famous footy player, played Origin, played Australia. Got a 16-year-old son who's following in his footsteps, Gavin. He's got a girlfriend. Charmaine is a nutritionist. She's 40. And he's cruising along. He kind of gets up, has a soft sand jog. He goes to work, shifts bags at the airport. And then he hits the pubs with his mate, hits the pub, the Casbah with his mates. You know, all ex sportsmen. And they kind of have between four and 14 schooners a day um, and put on bets. Um, and then one day he has an epileptic fit on the tarmac at Qantas and uh, finds out he's got a degenerative brain disease, you know, as a result of the thousand concussions and he goes on a process of self-discovery and his mind opens up and he ends up working at a pub and there's a poetry night and he hears a poem and it blows his head off. This disabled woman called Bridget tells a, a poem called You Swap With Me, I Swap With You about how we all have the same amount of pain. And then he starts getting haunted by dead poets. Bukowski, Sylvia Plath come to visit him. And as he deals with his son who wants to play footy, he starts going, I don't know if I want my son playing footy. And he realises he might die. So it's about a guy trying not to die and to try to get his shit together and to communicate, um, which is something the Aussie blokes and Aussie women, really, and women and men all over the world struggle with. How do I share my confusion? How do I share my fear? I am so scared. How do I say the things that are so hard to say? And he finds words. Through poetry, he finds words. They're not always brilliant words. They're plum words. They're Australian <laughs> vernacular, but they're bloody words. And if and and that's kind of that's what I'm suggesting to blokes is if you can't talk to blokes at the pub while you're on your putting your multi down, maybe you can write it down. Find words, find words, because they might save your life. Um, and that's what yeah, plums about. Mate, it sounds great. I think I might get it myself. It's uh. Very well uh, uh, written, explained then too. I think a lot of people listening will uh, jump on and, and have a, a read of the book. Mate, you're also a cricket tragic. The Ashes are on at the moment. I was just watching them before. So, But there was a show called How's That? Is it true that you played Rod Marsh in that? <laughs> did you watch it? Yes, I did. Well, you tell me. <laughs> you did play Rod Marsh. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, yeah, I played Rod Marsh, and, and I ended up, I ended up going to the cricket with him one day, and I still had the moustache. 
So I sat next to him at the cricket with a matching moustache and <laughs> and I was like, look where acting's taken me. I'm sitting next to Rod Marsh at the cricket. It was uh, unbelievable. You know, I remember John Howard walked in and I, I was not a John Howard fan, but he, he was looking everywhere and he said to me, son, my eyes are terrible. Can you find my seat? <laughs> and I said, John, grab onto my arm. And I, I led John Howard from this to through the room, <laughs> found in my seat. And later on, I hated to admit to my father, who was a devout liberal voter, I said, I hate to admit that I had a very good conversation with John Howard and he's very present. You know, it's very rare that you meet people these days, especially when there's 65 people in the room. And he was, he was asking me about the arts and film and overseas and he wanted to know, you know, and, you, and I thought this is how this bloke had such a good reign. He's there. And I tell you what, if, if you're there, if you're really there in the moment with someone, the rest will take care of itself, you know, and he has that. But, yeah, how's that was fun. I had to wear brown contact lenses and they kept falling out of my eyeballs. And I had to bat left-handed. And the infamous Trevor Chappell was our cricket coach, the old underarm himself. So, yeah, it was great. And two of my really good mates, Damon Gamo and Matt Lenevez, played Greg Chappell and Dennis Lilly. And we'd all played a bit. So they got us. We were heavily involved because we actually looked like we could play, you know. And they sliced in the, the actual footage, stock footage, with us. And it worked. Mate, it was a great show. So. Um... I grew up in that era, you know, watching uh, Lily and Marsh and the Chapel Brothers and, yeah. you know, that, the, the early 80s. The start, you know, when it went to that World Series cricket, it was just an amazing time to be uh, young coming through and watching that. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for uh, having a chat. At the end of the interview, I've got five fun facts I usually throw at the uh, guests and you can yeah. answer them any way you want. It doesn't matter. It's no wrong and right answers and whatever yeah, comes well, out, comes out. I just want to say that, you know, I have a feeling one of my really good mates, Jace, was on here talking about his swim to Alcatraz and I, I have a feeling that he prepared his before because they, sound, <laughs> they sounded pretty, pretty curated. So I just want the <laughs> listeners to know and the surfers and all of you guys out there and your G-strings with your paddle boards and your foils, that me, Brendan Cowell, authentically, I've got no idea what Hoppo's about to ask me. <laughs> so I'm the real deal. I am the real deal. You are, mate. And I also want to say that I, I still have PTSD from when mum made me do nippers. It was terrifying. <laughs> uh, but, you know. Can't be good at everything. <laughs> Mate, uh, first question. Tell me a time you failed and what you learned from it. Never failed at anything. <laughs> no, what a time oh, – jeez, I probably should have prepared these answers. I can't think of anything. Um, well, that that was probably – that was probably it was, you know, w was swimming and surfing. And mum really built it into me that I needed to be a strong swimmer and I went to nippers and she actually put me in squad – Swimming. I don't know, when you come off Captain Cook Bridge towards the city to the left, there's a pool there. Yep. And she would make me go and do squad swimming with these guys and they're all strong swimmers. And I thought I always thought I was going to drown. And I had to just come in one day and say, Mum, I, 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 can't, I can't do it anymore. You know, I think probably why you find that actors don't need to go bungee jumping is because life is constantly – a near-death experience with the fact we don't know what's happening. It's a big risk. It's a big gamble. Um, and so I probably fail every week. I don't get three jobs a week. So every week. 
Mate, uh, if you could use a telescope to look for anything in the whole universe, what would that be? Um, I think we look too far beyond. Spend too much money going to other planets. You know, I'd probably shove the telescope into the Earth and look down deep into the Earth and deep into the ocean and deep into our Indigenous roots and our history and look more at the connectivity of what happened thousands and thousands of years ago and what nature's doing and how all the plants move and how they all feed each other and how the fish howl and the whales talk. And I'd face down and I'd try to learn from this glorious environment that we have and just, you know, search for more answers on Earth. Mate, what's the closest thing to real magic? Sex. (laughs) If your life was a movie, what songs would be on the soundtrack? I think the main one would be these days turned out nothing like I had planned. <laughs> and, mate, the, uh, the last one, what terrible movie do you love? <laughs> what terrible movie do I love? Yeah. Like, the, like a guilty pleasure movie? Anything, mate, anything, anything. <laughs> what guilty pleasure, what, what terrible movie do I love? It's a very good question, that. I love Old School with Will Ferrell and Luke Wilson about them being frat boys. That is a genuine lull. But, yeah, other than that, I can't think of a terrible movie that I love. Very good answers there, mate. And, Brendan, it's been a pleasure having you in the beach shack and having a chat, telling your story, and uh, can't wait for Avatar to come out and also go out and get your new book, Plum. Yeah, go out and grab a copy of Plum. Women who read books are loving it and men who read one book every 10 years are loving it. So, you know, whack it in the stocking and, you know, it's our vernacular. It's our story. It's our relationships. So it's not like one of those novels where you feel you need a degree. You know, go and embrace it. It's for Australian people. It's for working class Australian people. It's a love letter to the suburbs. So, you know, you'll love it. But, yeah, thanks for having me on, man. Nah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks, mate. Now let's go to Beach Banner. Okay, this week for Beach Banner in the Beach Shack, it's a welcome back. Reedy, how are you, mate? G'day, Hop. I'm good, mate. It's good to be back in the shack. I was thinking about resuscitations. You know, we have a few over the years, and I thought back to your first resuscitation. So with Candice, can you tell me a bit about that experience? Oh, God, geez, you've gone deep there, Hop. That would have to be nearly whew, 20 years ago. I think it was before the show, so that didn't get captured by the TV cameras, thank God, because I absolutely butchered it. I'm surprised she's still alive, actually. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I remember I was helping Ben Quigley load the boards on the roof for the lifeguard challenge, and I was dro- we were dropping them over to Bronte because we usually run to Bronte – oh, sorry, run to Tamar, swim to Bronte and paddle back to Bondi, and um, – and I, I just, you know, just watch the water as we do as lifeguards. And I just remember looking south, and I saw what, what I, I, I just knew straight away it was a someone face down. And uh, I said to Quiggers, mate, there's someone face down in the south corner. He looked. He said, nah, it's a snap board. And I was like, nah, mate, that's someone face down. 
And I don't know if it's quick because Quiggers is a bit older than me. Maybe his eyes were a bit gone. But <laughs> you know, anyway, I remember running through the tower. And as I ran through the tower, I just said, South Corner, South Corner. And as I'm running through and saying that, I could hear Kalen radioing saying he was going in. And I, I, I think I think there was a buggy there and, or a run down. I can't really remember. But I got down there and Sean Carroll was there as well. Harry's his brother who hasn't worked with us for a while. And uh, those two, Kalen and Sean paddled out and I – I knew there was a board attached to a leg, so I thought I'll just swim out because there was no boards where they were, and I thought the boys would need a hand with the patient. It was, it was pretty big swell. I think it was four to five foot. It was really low tide, and I think that's what happened. She, she was just she, she was a bit of a novice, and she was paddling out and sort of went out in the rip without getting the hair wet, and then drifted onto the bank, and then bang, big four footer hit her on the head, and. And knocked her out, or that's that's what we assume happened anyway. She doesn't really remember in the end, but but yeah, I, I jumped on her board and we sort of got her on Kaylin's board and we puddled her in and we we dragged her up the beach and Quiggers had all the medikit ready to go and I think you were there as well, mate. It was a, it was a pretty textbook rescue, really. It was it was we we dragged her up on the board using the board to as a stretcher, put her on the beach, turned her on her side, checked for a pulse, no pulse think you and Quiggers might have been putting the – or maybe you were doing compressions. I can't really remember. But, yeah, we I think we did a couple of rounds of CPR before the pads went on. Pads went on, checked for a rhythm, shocked her. Then we did a couple more rounds of CPR. Uh, may have sh- I think we shocked her three to four times. But the, the one thing I – the one mistake I kept making being on the head was I every time we'd roll her when she vomited, I – I would drop the Goodell into the sand. It would just, I just, just have a mind blank. And so I had to keep running down and washing it out instead of shoving a sandy Goodell down her throat, which I'm sure she wouldn't have appreciated later. I think I remember when uh, you were doing that because I came down from the tower. Then I, I think you're right. I was doing some the compressions and uh, I'd be doing the compressions. So I'd look up and you'd be running off all the time. Where's he, where's Reddy going to? <laughs> yeah, I was. I definitely, uh, I was, I'm not going to lie, I, I was very nervous. You know, I had a girl that was similar age to me, 26 years of age, and she was very blue and, and very dead. She'd probably been down for about four minutes by the time we got her in and stuff. So, yeah, look, we, we ended up getting her back, and, and fortunately for Candace, she's she's got no issues at all. I think they did a little bit of experimental uh, medicine on her where they, they put ice in her groin and under her armpits to try and, whether it's speed up the blood flow or slow it down, I'm not too sure. They induced her in a coma, but now she's completely fine with three beautiful young kids. And uh, I think we can, other than my little stuff ups with the Goodell, I think we did a pretty good job. And it was good to, it was good for me personally to be there with with a lot of experience, like between you, Quiggers, you know, Kaylin had been a lifeguard, you know, a couple of years then, and Sean Carroll had been a lifeguard for a fair few years too. So I was pretty lucky. I was in good company to to, to get to do my first resus with with some of the best, and I think that was probably one of the reasons why Candace is still with us today. And I've done a few more since then, and I haven't dropped the Goodell in the sand. So <laughs> it is true. You live and you learn, and you. You can learn from the old dogs, like yourself. <laughs> I think she was one of the first ones, though, that, that freezing technique, because I remember getting information back from the hospital, and I think they trialled something like that at the hospital as well to get the swelling in the brain down, mm. and I think that really helped her. I think that was stopping the brain damage, and yeah. she, I think she ended up without any anything wrong with her at all. No, no, she was a lucky girl that day. I mean, Kaylin was right place, right time, and and you know she had a she had a good crew of lifeguards working on her. And I, I'm pretty sure we had a pulse, and she was she was she was very conscious by the time the ambos got there. So 
yeah, it was a it was a proud moment, I think, for all of us. And you know, that was one of twelve major resuscitations we did in the year before they started filming Bondo Rescue. And I think actually that was a big part of the reason why why Ben Davies made the call to start the pilot episode and send it off to to the stations. And next minute we're here now, and sixteen years later, and you look a lot older. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mate, obviously you've got no mirrors in your house because dead set. <laughs> I reckon you could be 20 years older. <laughs> mate, I have a rough head. And that's because I have nearly got three kids now, and I tell you what, they're slowing me down. I'd like to say it's age, but I think it's the kids, as you know. <laughs> yeah, that's what's age to me, mate. Don't worry, it doesn't get any easier. <laughs> I know. But Candace did, um, she did donate a board. She's so grateful in uh, what we all did to get her back to life mate she did she donated a board and she also put on a big party for us up at uh i think it was somewhere on oxford street yeah it was good good night but we all we all had a we all ripped in and uh, yeah a few of us had to have the day off the next day but the, you had a good boss and he let us have the day <laughs> off and all was okay <laughs> already mate great having you at the beach shack telling your story and uh we'll catch up soon thanks Hop. now it's time to have a listen to the fans in the mailbag. This week's mailbag is a letter from Peter, who uh, lives in Sydney. He asks, how is Mario after completing the Sydney to Hobart? Well, Peter, uh, I've had a good chat to him and I've actually got him to come on the podcast and tell his story about his sailing career and doing the city to Hobart. So that will be coming up in the next few weeks and you'll get more of an insight into that. But Mario was stoked. He was so happy he completed the city to Hobart for the first time. And the celebrations, as you can see on his social media, was uh, he was ecstatic. Everybody loves him. It's an amazing uh, effort to complete a race like that. So congratulations to Mario and Peter. Thanks for sending in that letter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Remember to subscribe to Life's a Beach wherever you get your podcasts and hit us up with questions, comments, or follow us on our social media channels, which you can find in our show notes. That's it for today, beach fans. Stay safe and swim between the flags.